When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today my guest is Louis Epstein, author of The Creative Labor of Music Patronage in Interwar France, published by the Voidel Press in 2022. Patronage has long been an important topic of study in musicology, but is much more likely to be one that specialists in medieval or Renaissance music research. In this book, Epstein turns to patronage in the 20th century to reveal an important part of the musical economy that is often overlooked. Many different types of patrons existed in this period, from music publishers and the French government to institutions and wealthy individuals. Far from being disinterested financial supporters, Epstein finds that these patrons were part of the creative labor that producing music requires. Although some of these patrons tried to interfere with the compositional process, most were engaged in a more subtle form of labor. For instance, they created like-minded composers, encouraged people to write in expensive genres like opera or orchestral music, and supported French nationalism. Epstein also finds that the French example helped to influence the flowering of institutional patronage in post-World War II America. It's great to be able to talk to you today, Louis. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you come to this topic? It was 2008. And if you remember what 2008 was like, we were in the middle of the Great Recession. And uh, I was thinking about how it is that anyone can pay for something as, uh, as precious as music, especially in hard times. I was already interested in early 20th century French music. I had uh, gotten to write an undergraduate thesis on uh, the music of Georges Auric, and had had done some other work on various composers in Les Cis. Um, and so I was looking for a way to combine that that sort of topical interest uh, in, in that time and place with uh, the thinking that I was doing about uh, the sort of material background against which all music takes place. Um, so this wasn't something you started in graduate school. This is a new project for you. Well, it is. So 2008, I was in grad school. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're so young. I should have known. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was just... in grad school too, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so, um, what you point out in the introduction that patronage studies, and and I said in the, in my introduction too, that patronage studies is usually something that is is considered by musicologists much earlier in much earlier time periods. Why did you go to the 20th century if you were thinking about patronage? Well, as I said, I was already interested in 20th century music, and so I wondered whether questions that we normally ask about earlier periods could just as well be uh, asked of, of this particular period. Um, I also I also uh, identified a gap in the literature. It seemed to me that 
um, people just weren't talking about this. And I wondered whether one reason for that was uh, a real reticence to acknowledge that some of the, the canon that we call modernist today, um, which is really assumed to have broken away from audiences and therefore broken away from, um, again, those sort of material conditions, um, I wondered whether that reticence was actually a kind of bias uh, that that maybe we were not asking these questions of certain music because we wanted that music to be different from the music that servant composers had created, uh, you know, prior to around 1800. Well, that actually brings up one of the topics you talk about a couple of times in the book where it wasn't just maybe researchers who had that bias, but the musicians themselves seemed a little concerned about being patroned because they were worried that it would somehow uh, compromise their vision of themselves as being, you know, the lone composer who is completely in charge of their own uh, compositional output, uh, sort of keep in keeping of that sort of romantic ideal of the of the sort of lonely composer in the garret. Um, so was that fear realized for these composers or, or, or you know, how, how would you uh, answer that fear of, of those composers? Based on my research, it was rare that a composer was forced to compromise their values or their aesthetics uh, in favor of a patron's values and aesthetics. It is something that composers mention from time to time. I offer an example of Francis Poulenc um, writing about a patron named Edward James, who uh, commissioned a choral work uh, from Poulenc, Sécheresse. And Poulenc, the, the, the premiere wasn't as successful as he would have liked. He had some regrets about the way that he had arranged the piece and decided to blame James um, for those problems. Um, but for reasons I go into in greater depth in the book, it's not clear to me that that that's the whole story. Um, and again, it's a pretty exceptional moment. Most of the time, at least privately, composers aren't uh, holding grudges against patrons who help them get their music made. Publicly is a different matter, right? And the the discourse that you're referring to, where there is genuine concern among among not only composers but also especially critics. Um, that patrons might have too great an influence. I, I do think that concern is consistent with this romantic ideal that you mentioned, um, that artists are supposed to work alone, that they're supposed to channel greatness from beyond and not from, uh, you know, not from the influence of, of money or particular individuals in society. But I think as musicologists, we've always, well, we, we haven't always as musicologists, but you and I, um, you know, I think always recognize that particular claim is dubious at best, right? And it's a it's an ideal claim that isn't actually borne out by reality. So to answer your question in a very short, short way, no, I don't find that composers often had to compromise what they wanted to do um, to, to serve the needs or the will of others. So um, if if that wasn't happening, you know, if the creative labor of the patron wasn't you know, oh, Poulenc, I really think this should be an F sharp or, you know, use this um, a text or something. What is the creative labor that a patron um, does? Sure. So you mentioned in your introduction that a lot of it has to do with curation. And I, I give curation quite a lot of weight in the book. Uh, basically, while patrons aren't actively composing, they're not putting notes on the page, um, and in many cases, they're not even telling composers exactly what they want from a piece. They are choosing whom to support. 
And that's huge. I, I think we, we know um, in our own context that the people who get the fellowships, the people who, who win the orchestral commissions, um, those are the people whose music gets made and gets distributed, you know, and that gets heard. And it, it hasn't been so different or wasn't so different uh, in the early 20th century French context. So if today we talk a lot about these composers called Les Cis, I think part of that has to do with their ability to get themselves pressed. They were really great uh, at marketing and PR. But I also think it has to do with their ability to secure opportunities to get their music composed and heard. And composers who weren't quite as adept at securing those opportunities, composers who had less interaction with the moneyed class, with the elites who were maybe interested in offering commissions, um, those composers are, are ones we don't know about as much today. And, you know, it's hard to, to prove a causal relationship there, but the correlation is very strong. So curation has a big role to play. Merely choosing whom to support, that plays a big role in which pieces get written, which pieces have a chance of entering the canon that we live with today. I think another big uh, form of creative labor has to do with shaping compositions through the kinds of very light criteria that are applied. So for instance, if the Princess de Polignac says, I want a piece that can be performed in my salon, her salon seats, well, one of the salon seats uh, 100 and the other salon seats 200 to 250. Um, she has a beautiful Cavalier Cole organ uh, that could be used. She has two grand pianos, right? So she has certain, uh, she has certain material circumstances that she presents to composers and says, in particular, I would like you to compose for this space, for these instruments. In some cases, she tells people that she wants to be a part of the performance. So uh, to Eric Satie, uh, she said, I would like a piece that could be performed while I declaim Greek poetry with my friends. Ultimately, Satie takes the piece in a slightly different direction that becomes Socrat of 1918. Um, but the idea of Greek uh, history or, or sort of Greek philosophy um, is, is part of the Princess de Polignac's commission, right? So that informs how Satie writes the piece. Later on, she asks Francis Poulenc for uh, a piece that she can play on the piano. Um, and he ends up writing the two piano concerto, which ends up surpassing the Princess de Polignac's skills, um, but again, is still coming from a place of her interests and her sort of logistical suggestions. And I found that to often be the case. I think the, the most significant example of that is when the French government starts giving uh, state commissions to composers in 1938. They're giving them in particular categories. And again, this is closely related to how fellowships and commissions work today. They're saying you can write at, uh, an opera, you can write uh, a substantial orchestral work, um, or you can write a ballet. And it is, already a significant constraint to say to a composer, to receive this money, you will write in these genres. And essentially the French government is picking winners in terms of what genres are gonna represent French music in the 20th century. So I, I think that is also a form of creative labor um, and there is extensive evidence of it being applied in this context. Um, so you bring up the French government as one of the main sponsors and to me, Anytime a government is a, a sponsor or a patron, whether that's in 1930s France or 1530s Italy, there's a nationalist or, you know, statist sort of reason for it. But um, uh, 
Do you think so? But I, I felt like maybe nationalism was a larger reason behind some of these patrons beyond even the French government. Can you talk a little bit about the role of French nationalism in the reason why these patrons wanted to be patrons or maybe why they patroned in the way that they did? Yeah, absolutely. I'm teaching a class right now called Music in Paris in the 1920s, and nationalism is, is sort of the central theoretical lens that we use to understand a lot of the uh, a lot of the behaviors of French musicians and critics in this period. And I think the same motivations applied in many cases to various patrons, whether the French government or individuals, or in some cases, um, ballet impresarios. Essentially, the the context that I know the most about is that um, after the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, there's a real sen sense in France, uh, you know, across various fields that France has failed, um, that the national project is really suffering and needs to be revived in some sense and needs to be strengthened in the face of what was perceived to be, you know, German aggression and German dominance, really. Um, and especially in music, the the canon that was already forming by the end of the 19th century strongly privileged German composers. And they knew that in France um, and struggled with their love for German composers, even as French composers weren't achieving the kind of international recognition that they saw German composers achieving. And I think that um, that inferiority complex really rolls into the early 20th century pretty much without uh, interruption. So the French government seeking to stimulate the, what they call the national production, I and mean, they use the phrase in a memo, national production of symphonic music. Um, that is done with an eye towards Germany's cultural dominance and with an eye towards its military rearmament after the First World War. So that's, that's explicit on the part of the government that the French cultural nation needs to be as strong as the German one. And if that's going to be the case, well, the German government is funding its arts um, hand over fist. And there are so many articles in the French press in the 1920s and 1930s bemoaning the fact that the French state won't fund French theaters, but German theaters are getting millions of Deutschmarks, you know, every year, and they can put on the newest operas with the most lavish productions, including premieres of operas by French composers. And Darius Mio's uh, uh, Christophe Colomb getting premiered in Berlin in 1930 was a, a national disgrace. I mean, critics were up in arms about it. Um, so the idea is that the French government has to put money into this the same way that the German government does. And that's a, that's a clear nationalist motivation. For individual patrons and for some ballet impresarios, I think that nationalist impetus is also present. There is a sense that uh, there are certain values that are French and that come out in French music and that should be promoted. Um, and it's tricky because, you know, the Princess de Polignac was also interested in Wagner, right? And she, uh, she loved Bach. Nadia Boulanger led performances of Bach cantatas and um, other pieces in the Princess de Polignac's salon. It's not a kind of blind nationalism um, and certainly not a, not a biological um, or yeah, not a biological nationalism in that like if you have German blood, you're, you know, you're out. But there's still a sense that there are French, um, French aesthetics that could be cultivated and to cultivate them will only uh, lend more prestige and more renown to the productions of this country that, that these patrons loved, right? 
and that they they sought to sort of bring into the 20th century musically. I took a course with Annegret Fauser on foreigners in Paris, right in the, a little bit earlier than that, at, um, starting in the late 19th century. And we would joke all the time, there was France one, everyone else zero. They would always find a way to make whatever it was somehow French or the, a reflection of the strength of the French national product. And it didn't really, I mean, it could be though they did a Wagner opera, the opera, but that's if there was a way to make that somehow a good thing for France. And it sounds like that carried on uh, into the 20s and 30s from from what you say in the book and, and now. Yeah. Um, so you describe a sort of categories of patronage, I guess I, you could say. And I, I felt like most of them seemed familiar in some way. They might be slightly different because you're talking about the 20th century. But the one that was surprising to me was publishers as patrons. I never thought of publishers that way. Can you talk about how publishing becomes a form of patronage? Yeah, this requires a little bit of uh, logical acrobatics, I think, because we normally think of patrons as those who are not trying to make money from, uh, from their work, right? It, that's a, a sort of clear line. And for the most part, publishers are trying to make money, right? They are, um, they're picking up works in order to distribute them to the, the widest possible audience, pricing them in a way that hopefully uh, will, will turn them a profit. But, and this is true of academic publishing today as well, um, I won't talk about the royalties deal on my book, which you know may, may eventually net me like a nice dinner somewhere, we'll see. Publishers often lost money on the music that they published. And what I found surprising because I too had not really thought of publishers as patrons um, and hadn't really been interested in thinking of them that way when I started this research. But what I found astonishing was that publishers in giving advances to composers against their eventual royalties um, were essentially funding the composition process. They were giving composers the time and space and also the incentive to finish certain pieces. And this is true, especially in Mio's case. And the, the chapter on publishing really focuses on the case of Darius Mio. Um, and so I thought, well, if one of the ways I'm defining patronage is that you make it possible for people to create music in part through financial support, but also through other forms of support. And if in fact, that's what publishers are doing, even though there's no guarantee of making money. And in fact, in the case of many of these composers and the, the firm Universal Edition, um, they, they had to know that many of them were not going to turn a profit. Right. And actually, this is the model. The business model is you, you assume 80% losses, but also assume that 20% of the things that you publish will produce gains that wipe out the other losses. And it's it's a little hard to know, you know, which piece is going to fall in which category. Um, it seemed to me that all of the pieces uh, for understanding publishers as patrons were there, at least in the case of Universal Edition and Neo. Um, especially given that Universal Edition not only offered Mio uh, advances on some of his works, but also worked really hard to get them performed in various places. And we also think, again, of patrons as being facilitators, as being nodes and social networks. Um, I would acknowledge that if there were any stretches in the book, right, it would be the chapter on publishing. And what I hope actually is that someone reads it and says, you know, I see where he's coming from, but here's where it's wrong, right? Or here's how we can um, here's how we can hone this idea a little bit more. I would be very open to that. 
Um, but based on the criteria that I was setting and based on what I was seeing in Mio's relationship with this publisher, I thought, you know, this is right on the line and it's definitely worth exploring. Did you see any examples of like record companies or radio stations doing this kind of thing? Because that was my other thought was like, you know, I, I mean, I was all on board with the argument, but then I wondered, well, how is the example of publishing different from other companies that also, you know, arranged performances or um, facilitated performance in some way yeah. from publishing? That's a great question. I think, I think record companies... Uh, especially the less successful ones, could very well be understood in the same way that I'm understanding publishers. You know, one of the one of the other criteria that I forgot to mention a second ago is that one of the reasons I'm able to think of publishers as patrons is because I'm trying to abandon the idea of disinterest, right? I'm trying to move past this, what I think is a myth, that patrons are are ever disinterested. That is another romantic ideal, but it you know predates the romantic era. So if it's not about disinterest, if it's just about um, identifying different kinds of interest as not purely mercantile, right? Then, then I think, yeah, there's a place for publishers, there's a place for record companies, um, and maybe the line of who is a patron or you know what is patronage runs through those kinds of enterprises it's not on one side or another of them, right? So some of the things that they do could be considered a form of patronage. And then some of the things they do cannot. Some of the things they do can, are, should be considered exploitation, right? So, and, and the good kind of exploitation, you know, like making things happen, um, trying to make money for themselves as well as, well as making money for the, the art uh, artists. But yeah, that's an interesting question. Radio stations, I didn't see as much evidence of radio stations playing a really big role in either fostering composition, although there are some radio commissions specifically in the 1930s in France. Um, but I think that becomes a bigger part of French musical culture later, like especially after the Second World War. Uh, and then similarly with like arranging performances, um, not as much activity on the part of radio stations, although some of them did have orchestras actually through the 1920s and into the early 1930s. They had live orchestras playing rather than necessarily always playing records. Um, so probably the form of patronage that you talk about that seemed most similar to me, or one of the two maybe, to older patronage was this what you call aristocratic patronage, which I think you sort of meant less about like Princess Napoleon, that kind of actually an aristocrat as wealthy people who um who who were functioning in that same way and um i i was surprised to see that they had contracts with their with the composers they worked with which as far as i know is not really how say a 19th or 18th century aristocratic patron would work so is that something new and also what did you learn from these contracts thanks that's a great question I don't know what the origins of those contracts are. Uh, I I think another project that maybe I'll take on someday is to trace these kinds of threads back into the 19th century, right? Um, go back far enough, and you don't need contracts because you're already employing the people um, to do to do this work for you. And and actually, they did have contracts, right? They had, they had employment, you know, contracts, but those are sort of a different kind of thing. These are. Um, on a one by one basis, right? For each piece, you would essentially have a different agreement about what the rules of engagement are. And I also was surprised and delighted to find those contracts because 
most of the time in doing this research, you're reading between the lines. You're, you're hoping that someone will say something explicit about how things are paid for or what it means that this person is paying. Often um, those kinds of details are deemed impolitic, right? Like you, you're not supposed to talk about money and especially uh, aristocratic individuals, people who are born into a certain social class, it's really considered in poor taste to talk about money, right? So it was delightful to find these contracts. And then what I learned from the contracts was a little bit of what I was saying earlier, that that there was a kind of consistent set of concerns that patrons had and a consistent set of criteria that they were willing to hand down to composers or, or guidelines or um, constraints. I think constraint is a, is a good word. Um, often they would determine the instrumentation of the piece uh, as well as performing forces if it wasn't obvious. So if you said string quartet, you know, this is a piece for four performers. Um, but if you said orchestra, right, sometimes it would clar clarify like a small orchestra, an orchestra that can fit inside my salon. Uh, so instrumentation and performing forces, often the length of the piece would be dictated. And then the genre was the other big um, aesthetic detail that, that would be dictated in the contractual terms. And again, I want to emphasize that there's, there's a curatorial process at work here that's not a form of imposition, right? It's like if an art curator, a curator of an art museum calls up a contemporary artist and says, I would like to show your work. Do you have anything that is four feet by six feet? Um, is that an imposition? No, it's, you know, working with someone to make sure that their art gets shown and gets shared. And I think the same is true of these contracts that usually they were drawn up after the patron and the composer had already had some kind of interaction, um, had already had a good sense of who each person was and what they kind of cared about in music. And usually they corresponded to things that both people wanted. So when Polignac commissioned the two piano concerto from Poulenc, um, she knew that he wanted to write a big work. She knew that he was frustrated because he had mostly been writing songs and sort of small piano pieces that were easy to get published and therefore like more lucrative, um, but not what he really wanted to be working on. And so to say, I would like a work for two pianos, you know, uh, basically just gives Poulenc what he already wants. Uh, so so the, the contract terms were very thoughtful and not, not what I would call coercive, right? they represent a kind of collaborative process of discernment. And um, as far as I can tell, no one ever got sued for breach of contract. Polignac almost sued an artist in the 1890s for breach of contract. Um, but none of the musicians I looked at ever entered into that kind of legal trouble. The only exception is actually went the other way where Ida Rubinstein had commissioned a piece, actually a couple of pieces from Darius Mio and Arthur Oneger, and they had written the pieces, but she wasn't letting them be performed. And so the other details of these contracts often included, you know, when the first performance would take place, who would have the right to perform the piece? Is it the composer would have the right to get the piece performed, or is it only the patron has the right to perform it or to have it performed for a certain period of time? And in this case, Ida Rubinstein had claimed the right to have the piece performed and then was deferring on that premiere. And the composers really wanted their works to get out. They didn't want them sitting in her desk drawer, essentially. And so they threatened to undertake legal action against her, um, which is what tells me that these contracts held water, right? That they weren't 
they weren't formalities. They, they were fairly serious things. But again, the fact that there was rarely legal action suggests that they're evidence of a collaborative process more than an antagonistic one. I found it fascinating that it does suggest a professionalization of the the uh, relationship rather than sort of um, a, a completely, I don't know, artistic one. Maybe it's not the quite quite the right word, but rather that maybe it's a noblesse oblige, right? Instead of thinking of these aristocratic patrons as like, let me give you your mo my money and you will give me your prestige. And, you know, this, we're gifting each other these things there. This is a professional relationship. They each had their um, sort of lanes that they were in and responsibilities they were supposed to, to undertake. And let's have a contract because that's what you do in a professional relationship. It really made me think of that relationship completely differently to find out that it was there was a contractual side to it. Well, I'm really glad to hear that because I think it is important to think of these relationships differently. And especially that idea of noblesse oblige that you mentioned is a really pervasive one um, that, again, I think it diminishes the creative uh, abilities of patrons. And it kind of confuses the situation about what it is composers are trying to do. And they are professionals, right? Especially in the 20th century, um, increasingly they're professionals. Um, I do want to return though to the idea of gifts because I, I struggled with this quite a bit. I think that that romantic ideal of patronage as a kind of gift, um, it's not something that I want to get rid of entirely. I don't want to, I don't want to totally eliminate the idea of, if not disinterest, then at least, um, generosity, right? Generosity is obviously still playing a role here. One of the things that's worth noting is that Polignac gave money to lots of causes and she gave a lot more money to say um, public housing and hospitals than she did to composers, right? So philanthropists and, and patrons always have choices about how to spend their money. And the fact that she chose to spend it in part on music is significant. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the introduction is this theory of the gift that Marcel Moss, uh, a French anthropologist from the early 20th century um, first talked about, and it gets picked up by uh, an English literary critic named Hyde um, in the 90s, I think. And I, I want to remain open to the kind of mystery of musical creation. I don't want this story to be a purely deterministic one that says, if you have money, you can get music made the way you want it. And that's all. That's, that's the way it works, folks. Like, that's it. Um, I worry that that's, well, it's too deterministic for one thing. It just, it's too easy. But then I still like the idea of both composer and patron, in some sense, being invested in gift giving. Um, it's just that the direction of the gift giving isn't one way for each of them, right? If I had to draw a picture of it, right, it would be more like a patron has an arrow pointing to a composer who has an arrow pointing back to the patron, but also an arrow pointing out. And that arrow goes around and around and around and around. And eventually it comes back to the patron, right? Both in the form of the prestige that you mentioned, because patrons did absolutely get prestige from their association with composers, but also in the form of this music now being out in the world, influencing others, being enjoyed and performed um, and helping contribute to, you know, this wonderful mess that, that we are as humans. So I, I do think there's a gift aspect to this. It's both and, right? Um, one of the things you point out and is certainly true in the book is that there are a lot of women patrons that, and for 
I mean, for as long as I know of, women have women as patrons is probably the longest lasting role, acceptable role for a woman in music and the oldest role. But I wonder, do you think this sort of um, the lack of uh, scholarship on patronage, but also the way that we can sort of diminish patrons as sort of dilettantes who are, you know, giving money to people um, because they want prestige and that's it or something like that, um, as we were you were just discussing, is that because women are so much part of the of the equation that it is becomes easier to diminish it because of that? I think that has been the case, and that's something that Ralph Locke and Cyrilla Barr talk about at length um, in in their book uh, Women Patrons in the United States. Um, they in fact pr- propose a different title altogether for patrons. They think patron is kind of um, cr- uh, compromised as a word because it in, it includes these feminizing uh, connotations, and they propose activist instead. Um, I, for reasons you know that maybe you can imagine, I think activist ought to keep its own kind of connotation, and I think there's value to the word patron. Um, I'd like to see it reclaimed, right? So in making these kinds of arguments about the balance of disinterestedness or gift-giving or self-interestedness or creative aspirations, um, maybe we can reframe patrons uh, in a more in a more positive light, but I absolutely think that some of the reticence to study this or to celebrate patronage um, comes from a deep seated association of patronage with femininity, and of course, women's work um, historiographically at least has been undervalued, undervalued, right? Or if there is work that is undervalued, it becomes women's work, and um, yeah, I think that's something we have to keep working at in our scholarship to overcome. Well, and it also would explain <coughs> why the idea of this being a professional thing that even um, an aristocratic patron is is also has a professional relationship, you know, would be devalued or sort of erased from the from the equation if you're thinking of, you know, if it as being women's work and therefore not professional. Right. Yeah, I think there's something there as well. So you have um, mentioned a few um, specific patrons, universe, uh, Universal Editions, Princess de Polignac and Ida Rubinstein. And I thought maybe we, we can't talk about all of the cool people that you talked about in your book. We don't have time. But um, I'm really interested in um, Ida Rubinstein, Rubinstein. <laughs> now I know I don't know how to pronounce her name. Okay, there you go. But um, because not, I think she could have been, She, you think of her maybe in two categories, both aristocratic and then another one as entrepreneurial. So can you talk about her some and and all the, all the interesting things uh, that she was involved in? Sure. So Ida Rubinstein uh, gets her start in the uh, 1900s um, as a performer. She, she is the scion of a wealthy Jewish family. Um, her parents die when she's pretty young and she inherits all of this wealth. And she's, she's famously quite beautiful. Um, and she basically sets herself up as a thespian. So she creates um, opportunities for herself to perform in, in certain roles in Russia, where she grew up. And then she falls in with uh, Sergei Diaghilev, who is uh, the impresario extraordinaire of the Ballet Russe. And he identifies her as this fabulously exotic um, figure who can just dazzle audiences. And so he brings her on stage in, in these opulent um, Orientalist productions of, of the 
1909, 1910, 1911. So um, she plays Cleopatra, she plays Scheherazade. And, and she gains all this notoriety in, in France, um, where the ballet russes are, are just received with open arms and with so much excitement by the French public. And remember that she has all this wealth and that she actually got her start putting her own productions on so that she could star in them. Um, after she falls out with the ballet russe, she wants to go back to doing this. And what happens, unfortunately, is that <clears throat> she puts her enormous resources to the task of forming a ballet company. So, so she commissions all of these top flight composers, including Stravinsky, who writes two uh, two ballets for her. One is Le Baiser de la Fée uh, in 1928, and then also Persephone in 1934, which uh, is a ballet that Tamara Levitz has written about. And Ravel writes Bolero for Ida Rubinstein, which is the piece that I opened the book with. Um, she also puts on the first production of La Valse, which was a piece that Ravel wrote in 1919, presented to Diaghilev and said, would you like this as a ballet? And Diaghilev rejected it. Right. So there's some bad blood between Rubinstein and Diaghilev. That's an understatement. Bad blood is an understatement. They hate each other. And uh, and so she she commissions all these composers. She puts together this troupe, Nijinska is her choreographer. Um, they tour all over all over Europe. And for the most part, critics hated it. Um, they found that her desire to star in her own productions really held them back. And there might be some good reason for that. Uh, by the late 1920s, late 19, early 1930s, she is in her 40s, um, which is fairly late for ballet uh, performers in particular. She wasn't actually a ballet dancer. She was not trained in that way. She, again, she was an actress. She's a, she declaimed. Um, and so we have this historiographical record of, of Rubinstein's activities in, as pretty mixed, like there, there's just not that positive of a reception of these works. Um, but I think there's also some discomfort with the way she straddles these roles of patron who has money and wants to make it possible for artists to flourish, which she's definitely doing, but also entrepreneur, someone who is trying to make, uh, not make money specifically, but make an institution, create an institution and have the institution flourish and become self-sustaining, at least in terms of its artistic energies. And I think people really didn't know what to do with her. And that also helped, that also contributed to the pretty negative press coverage that she got. Um, again, she's not trying to make money. So entrepreneur doesn't exactly describe what she's doing, but like Diaghilev, who I think we can understand as being entrepreneurial in trying to keep the ballet Russe going for 20 years, um, and in, and really trying to make money throughout that time, although he had he had his highs and lows. Uh, Rubinstein really was an entrepreneur of ballet, at the same time that she was trying to be a patron and a star performer, and that was just too much for most critics. Well, it sort of reminded me if if Otto Kahn, the the great patron of the Metropolitan Opera, had also wanted to sing tenor in all of the major roles, right? How that that's a tough. Uh, road to hoe, I guess, because I think critics are always um, very suspicious of wealthy performers, right? Who, <laughs> um, who may, they, I think they wonder if they've bought their way in. And it sounds like that's what she was constantly uh, coming up against. 
Absolutely. And and critics were explicit about that. I mean, they accused her of throwing money at things. Um, yeah, a, as a totally corrupt exercise. And they didn't accuse other people of throwing money at things. Right? Jacques Boucher also threw money at the Paris Opera for, you know, 30 years. Um, and no one gave him a hard time about it because he, he wasn't showing up on stage. He also wasn't a woman. He wasn't Jewish. And he wasn't Russian. So Ida Rubinstein had a lot going against her in uh, in French culture, even though she she was naturalized and um, arguably should have been thanked. She was thanked. She was made a Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur in the, in the mid-1930s. I mean, some people recognized her contributions, but not not so much in the musical press. Um, so you talked about Diaghilev and, and, and she was a, a performer. And that is the other one of the other things that struck me was... Uh, the importance of ballet in this period. And I had only ever heard of the Diaghilev Ballet Russe. I had not heard of all these other ballet companies. Um, I have not read the Levitz book on uh, that, uh, unfortunately, and I, I would have found out about Ida Rubinstein then. But um, uh, why ballet? Why is ballet such an important um, force in patronage and in, in French music in general in the 20s and 30s? That is such a good question. I think there are a couple of factors. Um, one factor is that there was genuinely a dance craze in, in France in the 1920s, and it was a dance craze across social registers. So it applied equally to kind of low forms of dance, like music hall, um, nightclubs, um, but then it, it also applied to uh, sort of high forms of, of concert dance, right? And partly it was brought on by the Ballet Russe. I mean, they really reinvigorated French fascination with ballet when they arrived for first their, their sort of guest seasons in 1909, 1910, 1911, and then they became a resident company in Paris. Um, and especially after the Russian Revolution, they were kind of cut off from, uh, from Russia and then the Soviet Union. So the Ballet Russe, I think, deserve a lot of praise for creating this dance craze. Um, I also think there could be a link again back to French nationalism because there is a sense um, that develops through the 19th century, really, and Catherine Ellis has written about this, that the music of the Ancien Regime, the music of France prior to the French Revolution, um, captures some kind of essential French spirit that's unsullied by German or other foreign influences, and that represents the best days of French music, right? If the 19th century wasn't so successful for the French, and you're at the beginning of the 20th century, and you're like, well, when were we really good at music? You look back at the 18th century and people like Rameau and Couperin, and before that, you look at Lully, who was Italian, but as you mentioned, it didn't matter, right? Foreigners in France, they can get claimed as French very easily, and so did Lully. Um, and so I kind of wonder also whether the return to ballet as a an art form that can capture a French spirit might be related to those kinds of nostalgic um imagined memories of when it was great to be French and when French music was really great. I also think, um, you know, the influx of, of foreigners to France at this time, um, I think it might've created the right, the right conditions for pretty diverse audiences at these shows. And we know that it, for the Ballet Russe at least, Russian emigres came out in droves to see them perform. Because by the 1920s, the Ballet Russe represented the glories of pre-revolutionary Russia. Um, and so white Russians, the Russians who fought against the, the Bolsheviks um, and often lived in exile after the Russian 
Civil War in like between 1918 and 1921 or so, um, they often came with fabulous wealth and were very happy to to lavish it on um, this kind of enterprise. And then even the ones that came without wealth followed the exploits of the Ballet Russe kind of to, yeah, to feel a little bit of their former pride. Um, and then I think the Ballet Russe existed. It was clear there was a market. And so these other impresarios came along and said, how can I tap into this market or how can I pursue a different artistic uh, agenda and give the Ballet Russe a run for their money? And I think more surprising than finding out that there were other ballet troops is finding out that they actually did give the Ballet Russe a run for their money, that, that there were critics in the early 1920s, especially who thought the Ballet Russe had lost their way. Um, and that it was a good thing we have these other troops because they're offering a, a, a fresher and more French vision for what concert dance can be. Uh, I do want to turn to the French government for a moment because you describe, if I understand the book correctly, that um, the entrance of the government into the space of commissioning and patronage was really important. Uh, in sort of supporting expensive types of music that an individual patron maybe couldn't, you know, not many people can put on a full orchestral concert in their salon, even Princess de Polignac. Um, but uh, I wondered a little bit about the nature of the music that they uh, patroned. So a lot of times when a government is patron uh, is a patron, they not only want explicitly nationalist music, but they also want music that is broadly accessible so that, you know, it's going to uh, be comprehensible to as many people as possible because they're the government of all the people. Did you find in in French governmental patronage that sort of worry or were they just, um, uh, was it less intrusive than that, I guess, maybe? Or, or were they, I guess I'm wondering also their curation of composers. Were, right. Do you see that sort of somewhere in there, that kind of ideal in the, in the composers that they chose to commission? Yeah, absolutely. So the the there was a huge debate in the 1930s among uh, people within the French government and sort of adjacent to the French government uh, about how accessible music should be. And this is in line with the advent of the popular front uh, across various countries, right? The same debates are happening in the United States at this time. Um, you know, look at like Mark Blitzstein's The Cradle Will Rock um, and other WPA projects. Um, people are concerned about accessibility in the 1930s, <clears throat> and a lot of that comes from sort of the political left. And in, in France, you have an active communist party, um, you have an active socialist party. What's interesting is that among musicians, there are both musicians who think, yes, we should be writing more accessible music, we should be writing more wind band music, right? We should be writing music for popular chorales. Um, but there are also musicians who find that that approach is... Uh, patronizing and infantilizing. It says elite music is only for elites and the the great unwashed masses, oh, we'll write simple melodies for them because they can't handle this elite music. And there are musicians who said, no, 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 that's, that's a really wrong-headed way of looking at these things. We should be making music accessible in the sense that the, the populace should have access to our difficult, challenging, or, um, or just very specialist music um, we shouldn't be playing down to them. We should be educating them and making sure that they have enough interactions with this music to really get it, to appreciate it. Right? And this, you, maybe at this, maybe you know already. At the same time that this is going on, you have the rise of the music appreciation movement, 
right? This idea that everyone can learn to listen to music in a, in a sophisticated way. It just, it takes pedagogy, right? You have to get people there. Um, and so I think the French government too is aware of these debates and goes back and forth a little bit about what kinds of pieces should be commissioned, um, which kinds of composers should be chosen. By the time the commissions program comes into effect in 1938, the government in charge is a conservative one. So the commission's idea comes out of a relatively left-leaning government, but it doesn't actually get put into effect until a more conservative government takes over. And um, the more conservative government's position is that the best artwork is going to best represent France's cultural um, cultural supremacy on the international stage. And so there isn't much attention to the accessibility of the works that are commissioned as part of this commissions program between 1938 and 1946. Um, but that doesn't mean that that debate wasn't present before that program was put into place. So we're getting to towards the end of our time to be able to talk together. And I, I did want to skip to the end of the book to make sure we, we discussed how you chose to end it up. And, and I was surprised sure. that the last chapter is about Kusevitsky. And it's not just his time in France, but also Kusevitsky as a patron in the U.S. when he becomes the uh, conductor of the Boston Symphony. And I'm wondering why, you know, of course, tell us about that, but also why did you choose to end a book on French patronage in America? Well, I really struggled when I was writing this book with how to define France. And this is something I teach my students to struggle with too. It's a burden that I'm, I'm bequeathing to them. Um, is France just this this place, right? Is it this geography? And if you're in the geography, you're in France, so you're French. Or is France, um, is it an idea? And sometimes it is certainly an idea, right? The idea of French music. Uh, where does French patronage take place, right? Does it take place among people who are only based in France, supporting French composers? Can you support composers outside of France? Can you be a patron in the United States supporting music in France? And I, I think the answer to all of these questions is yes, right? All of this is part of the story. And so I really wanted to show that the, um, the context that I'm interested in is far broader than the narrow geography of, of France itself. Um, and that the, the legacies of this work stretch beyond French music, right? So this is, this is a topic that I think should be important, not only to people who study French music already, but people who are interested in other musics and other times and places. Uh, because we know that culture is necessarily transnational and this patronage culture, at, at least as I see it, certainly um, wasn't wasn't confined to just France between 1918 and 1939. Uh, I got interested in Kusevitsky because I just saw him popping up in the 20s, you know, in Paris and popping up in a really big way. I I was able to do quite a bit of research in uh, in Paris at the Bibliothèque Nationale at some other archival sites, and they uh, at the Bibliothèque Nationale they have a great collection of materials related to Kusevitsky, including this wonderful five-page memo that either he or someone around him produced to indicate the impact that he had had on music in Paris uh, during really just the first half of the twenties. I mean, he continued performing there after he became conductor of the BSO in 1924, but, um, you know, he, he just, he gave dozens of premieres of pieces by French composers as well as composers from elsewhere. 
he put on all of these really high-level performances, mostly at the Opera, um, at a time when other orchestras, and there were many, were struggling to present new music. They were really relying on the hits to, to bring in paying audiences. And he essentially had no fear in this respect, um, in part because, again, he had a large personal fortune to draw on and was not as concerned about whether his orchestra would turn a profit. Um, and so I just thought he was this really dynamic and fascinating figure who bridged, again, Russian culture with French culture and then later with American culture, um, who is doing a lot of work that I think of as patronage, but who might not be called a patronage, patron, sorry, in the same breath that we call the Princess de Poliniac a patron until he starts explicitly commissioning pieces as conductor of the BSO. Um, but I also thought, I mean, once I saw that he was really fostering new music in Paris as a conductor and as somebody who was programming concerts, it occurred to me that this exists in a kind of straight line with his commissions for the BSO, um, that he's, he's soaking up the patronage culture around him and then uh, exporting it essentially to the United States when he gets there. He's not the first person in the United States to you know, commission orchestral works, of course, but, um, but he did it in a really systematic way. And I thought that was a thread that is worth following. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today to talk about this book. It's a huge project, obviously, you know, of your whole career, really, starting in grad school and now. So what are you doing now that this is wrapped up? So I am uh, I'm working on two projects right now. One is related to digital mapping of music history. And this is something I've been working on for a couple of years, but I haven't published uh, anything on it yet. I've, I published a website, musicalgeography.org, um, but I'm I'm looking forward to publishing uh, an article or two, and then potentially a book on how m digital mapping can be used to do research in musicology, um, but it can also be a useful teaching tool and a way to reach a broader public. The other project that I have on my plate uh, is uh, teaching oriented. So I'm interested in looking at teaching as a creative practice and asking how teachers um, keep themselves creative, right? And, and maybe find creative ways to get students to learn. Um, and I, I actually was able to conduct a series of interviews uh, early, fairly early in the pandemic um, when I was on sabbatical. Uh, and so I have all these interviews to work through and to, to sort of write into this framework I have. Um, and so that hopefully will be a book. Well, both those projects sound great. And I can attest Musical Geography's very cool website. <laughs> I you. work with my students all the time. It's very awesome. It's very cool what you, you have done with your students and created these really neat maps. And I think a great, a great teaching tool, but also I think a great, uh, a, a really interesting way to look at music when you're thinking of it as very place-based. So very cool. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. My name is Kristen Turner, and I've been talking to Louis Epstein, author of The Creative Labor of Music Patronage in Interwar France, published by the Boydell Press in 2022. And this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Thank you so much. Thank you.